And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, and I'm delighted that you're here. When Canada finally legalized cannabis for adult use, it produced a wave of optimism on the part of the cannabis industry stakeholders here in the U.S. But the fact remains that we have a long way to go before our federal government will follow Canada's lead. Despite the ongoing prohibition at the federal level, the cannabis industry has managed to thrive in states that have passed marijuana legalization measures. As a result, there's no shortage of investors looking to put their money into cannabis and no shortage of ambitious entrepreneurs who would gladly put it to good use. The elephant in the room, of course, is federal prohibition, which makes investing in the emerging industry risky, if not more difficult or simply illegal. Recent reports circulating about Canadian investors who have put money into cannabis securities being banned from the United States have chilled the enthusiasm for investing in American companies. Couple that with the fact that major banks in the U.S. won't touch cannabis money, and it's easy to see that we've reached a regulatory impasse. That's a shame considering that for the first time in a generation, we are on the precipice of unleashing an industry that could solve so many problems, not the least of which are economic, for the U.S. if only our federal government would just step out of the way. Meanwhile, Canada's market is where the smart money is being invested, and while Canadian cannabis companies are reaping the rewards, American companies are forced to work around federal law. In recent months, a number of resourceful U.S. cannabis companies have been listed on the Canadian exchanges to capitalize on the country's legal framework for investment into the industry. Private companies looking to expand on the domestic front have had to learn to navigate through banking barriers and other legal complexities in order to remain competitive. That's the topic of today's show, and I'm looking forward to discussing this with our guest who knows a lot more about this than I do. Kevin Conroy is a former Deputy Attorney General for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, now practicing law as a partner in the Boston law firm Foley Hogue, where he originally began his career in 2005. He eventually became Chief of Staff and General Counsel of the New England Council, where he advocated for priorities in healthcare, energy, and finance services before the New England Congressional Delegation and Governor. He later served as chief of the Massachusetts Attorney General's Business and Labor Bureau before becoming Deputy Attorney General and eventually returned to Foley Hogue as a partner in the firm's administrative law department with a primary focus on government investigations and regulatory matters. Kevin has considerable experience developing proactive strategies to guide clients through every aspect of the regulatory process and knows firsthand how government investigations work, particularly with highly scrutinized industries like cannabis. He represents a variety of marijuana investors and operators regarding both medical and recreational marijuana laws and local approvals needed to operate in Massachusetts and beyond. 
Kevin, thank you so much for being here. I'm so glad that you could join me today. Thank you, Snowden, for having me. I, I've listened to your podcast, and, and I'm excited to talk to you. Um, so you, you. You have a really great show and, and very interesting um, topics that you've been addressing. Thank you for that. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. You know, I was anxious to speak with you because you've been in the trenches when it comes to navigating the legal landscape ever since Massachusetts passed its adult use law. But now that Canada has legalized, you've also been active in helping clients work through some of those same regulatory challenges having to do with interstate and intercontinental investment and banking. So I'm really anxious to delve into this. But first, tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing at your firm so that our audience understands your area of expertise. Um, I'm an attorney um, from Boston and and have been working in the cannabis cannabis space for for about three years now. We represent generally um, applicants who are looking for state cannabis licenses in a variety of different states. We also handling a variety of transactions, um, some involving um, now Canadian companies as they enter our market and some and then a fair number of um, domestic transactions. Um, we've got a team here of uh, 10 attorneys who, who handle a variety of different cannabis work. We also do some trademark work, some IP work um, and and your everyday uh, corporate work and tax work for our clients. You know, I'm really eager to hear your take about the ways in which legalization in Canada is going to impact the U.S. market, because it's the first time in our lifetime anyway that we have an emerging industry that's been so restricted by federal law. And at the same time, it offers this incredible amount of opportunity for economic growth. And as I mentioned in my opening, a lot of companies are looking to Canada as a way to work around these restrictions. What are some of the pitfalls or even advantages that you're aware of? Well, um, you know, let's 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 make sure we understand the fact that Canada is now legal is, is a game changer for the United States and 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 can this cannabis industry in in the United States and and we've we've already seen it even though this is just a recent legalization we've already seen it in a few ways I I, I think for kind of most notably and we should talk more about this is is just the influx of Canadian funds funds from Canadian companies that that have are now looking to invest in the United States cannabis companies. Um, that is, we're, we're seeing a, a, a variety of different transactions that are happening now involving Canadian companies because right there, their stock market um, is, is 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 made very clear that they allow for for listing of, of cannabis companies. And so public dollars, um, you know, public fund, public money, public um, uh, dollars are now coming to the United States because of that. And, and that 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 has been the number one game changer we've seen in, in, in the work that we do. I think that the second thing that that is that makes the Canada different and, and why it's significant here is that we just have so much travel and back and forth with Canada that that um, that I expect what's going to happen with the legalization in Canada is we're going to see a further break breakdown of this nimbyism that we see in the United States. You know, I, I don't, we, we still see, and even our legalized states, we still see this nimbyism. And, and because there's so much travel from the United States to Canada, as our U.S. citizens go up there and they see how a legalized environment works, how they see it, how it works well, I, I think it's going to really open up people's minds here in the United States that, that, that legalization is fine. It's not, it's not the, it's not this evil thing that, that, that many folks see out there. And 
And so th- those are two examples um, that are kind of hot on my mind with the Canadian legalization. It's it's interesting because when Colorado and Washington first legalized, it was very interesting to me to see how the sky didn't fall in and the reaction of the people who were, you know, completely against it and fought it for as long as they did. And we still have so many people fighting it here. But I also find it interesting that the Canadian companies are looking to invest in the United States cannabis, whereas I think that for some time, it was sort of the other way around, wasn't it? I mean, it was more common for U.S. investors to want to go and invest in Canadian cannabis, mainly because they knew that the legalization was on the horizon. What's been your experience there? No, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, we, we've seen, you know, our, from our investor clients, this is for a long time now, um, looking to Canada because the opportunities were greater. The, everybody was anticipating legalization quicker and sort of the, 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 some smart money was moving to Canada. What, what has now happened and um, what we're seeing right now is um, this extraordinary amount of Canadian money that is that is coming to the United States and to 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 invest in in, in the cannabis industry in the United States and it is some of these larger companies who are on, larger um, cannabis companies who are on the Canadian stock exchange exchange like Afria Canopy Growth. Kronos and and there are many other examples and and they are interested in the United States and investing in cannabis companies in the United States for a couple of reasons right first is that there are large population centers in the United States and and for the most part our legalized dispensaries and legal legalized cultivation centers are, are doing very well and they they recognize that we've we have in in many states now we have well regulated markets where um, where where competition is good, but but the, the the industry is well run, and these Canadian companies are respecting that. And and then third, we we just got a big population here, and and so we are seeing this Canadian money come down. It, it's it's creating some very interesting regulatory issues because our regulators in the United States are having to get used to the fact that the, that we've got these Canadian companies who are investing here. But it it's it, it overall it's a good thing. We're seeing more money come into uh, to the um, to the to the American market, and that's going to be good for consumers. And how's it been with the SEC? I mean, have there been issues with the marijuana stocks? You know, obviously they're doing very well. They seem to be on an upsurge right now. But I mean, has the SEC given any hiccups to American investors on the Canadian stock exchange, or have there been any issues with like on the pink sheets or? any of the other exchanges here in the United States with cannabis stocks? Well, you, you are absolutely right that we've seen um, the American companies who are on the American exchange. Um, we, we have seen them do well in, in the penny stock world. Um, we have seen very few companies, um, however, get to that next stage. And, and part of that is, is because of concerns of, uh, of American regulators. Um, and, and what has also happened, right, is that um, our American companies, as they've seen our regulators being concerned, 
concern, the the SEC, um, and 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 because of the fail of our, our continued um, issues with American banks, um, many many of our better American companies are really larger American companies are really starting to look to Canada because they see better opportunities there, better opportunities to get funding, better opportunities to expand. So not only are we seeing the Canadian money coming to the United States, but we've seen um, we've seen American companies go up and 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 specifically um, get try to get listed on the on the Canadian exchange. A, a perfect example of that is um, is is Columbia Care, which is um, um, is, is which is it has gone up to the gone up to get finance on the on the Canadian exchange. And we've also um, seen that with uh, Cureleaf, which which did a, a reverse merger. This, these are American companies who who probably um, had in a perfect world would would love to be on the uh, American exchanges and and grow on the American exchanges, but recognize that the environment right now is 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 better in Canada and 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 hopefully that's a short term thing, but but it, it shows that 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 we've got sophisticated companies here who recognize that there are better ways to uh, to go out and raise capital. Yeah, and for so many years, you would see warnings from the stock commentators. The usual crowd saying, you know, if you're thinking of investing in marijuana stocks, beware, <laughs> because they are so volatile. I mean, they go up to 300% in a day and then drop again to 300%. So it, it seems like there's only one way that uh, that a lot of these companies can go as more and more states expand into legalization and eventually, hopefully, federal legalization. And that is up. But you know, not all of them are going to succeed. And what do you think is the measure of success for the U.S. companies right now who decide to go public? Well, I, I think what we're seeing among these American, or you know, what we're seeing with companies who've got um, own operations in the United States is they are racing to get um, operations in a variety of different states, the, right? Because you are, uh, many states have limited limits on the number of licenses you can have. For example, in Massachusetts, you are limited to having three um, dispensary licenses. And so that what that means is that if you're going to, once you get to your third license in Massachusetts, if you want to grow as a company, you have to go to another state. And so because of some of these license restrictions in, in states and in, in some of the larger states, you're seeing our, our, our American companies or companies who are who have operations in the United States racing to go to other states as as other states um, is, is their is their cannabis operations as they set up their cannabis operations. So, right, we're seeing a. a, a Incredible interest in New Jersey. We saw incredible interest in the medical, um, in, in the medical uh, system that they that, that are setting up in New Jersey. There's a lot of interest in what will come in in recreational in New Jersey, um, as as the system gets set up in Michigan, which um, has recently um, gone to adult use. You'll see you'll see our companies trying to look there, and so the growth in the United States is really staying on top of where the regular regulatory environment is getting better and, and setting up our operations in those states. Right. So that just begs the question, too, how do they deal with interstate commerce? Let's say if a supplier or a producer has product and they're getting licenses in multiple states, isn't it sort of cost inefficient to have, you know, 
if you're doing three different states, you have three different grow operations in three different states, wouldn't it be more cost efficient for them to have one big grow operation in one state and then transport their product into other states? I mean, how are how are companies dealing with that right now? Yeah, I mean, it, it, you are absolutely right that in a in a perfect world, we would have um, cultivation, you would have these large cultivation centers. And I think most people predict those large cultivation centers would, would end up in, will end up in California or at least some warm weather environments and, 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 you know, maybe one day actually internationally. But until we have legalization in the United States or at least a better better federal environment, um, the, you know, the, there is no, um, there's no shipment of product over state lines and no shipment of product over um, the U.S. border. And what, what that means is that um, companies who have state licenses um, have to set up or have to buy their product from operations within that state. And so we are seeing in in every state right now, um, you know, a, a, uh, a the need for cultivation, and it and it it's kind of had some interesting effects on um, state economies. And and you know, I'll, I'll give a couple examples here again in Massachusetts. Um, what we we have a we have a we have a you know many abandoned old manufacturing facilities that that one day were were the the textile industry in Massachusetts and and large buildings and these are these large buildings are now being turned into grow centers and I think in a perfect world it would not be efficient to to grow cannabis in Massachusetts just because of our um, because of our cold weather and and but but because the the cannabis that we're going to consume in Massachusetts needs to be grown in Massachusetts people adapt and and some of that adapting is is had wonderful is going to have wonderful effects on the on the economy of Massachusetts you know some of our 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 towns that are really struggling that were old textile like Holyoke and Fitchburg these these towns that are far from Boston but had a manufacturing base are now having are now going to have um better economies and a little bit of a resurgence because their their old buildings are being used for as growth facilities. It's it's a, it's a very interesting effect and and not necessarily one that's efficient but one that can be helpful to the economy. That's one thing that I was thinking about the other day that you know makes it an advantage that this has been federally illegal as the industry emerges into you know sort of an economic boomtown. Uh, when you're looking at these localized economies, I mean, how else are they going to benefit from huge operations, let's say, in agriculture that are centered in, in one state and shipped across state lines? Nobody gets to participate in that economy except to buy the products that they eat. And so with cannabis, federal prohibition has actually created a lot of opportunity for each state to participate in this economic upside, which is incredible, actually. It's nice. Yeah. And it, 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 I mean, one, you're absolutely right. And, and one of the good things about it is it, that it's allowed for um, a, 
some diversity in our industry and has allowed for um, some to right some of the wrongs of the of the war on drugs that that, that we've all that we all seen in the in the 90s and and you know in uh, in certain states in, um, in New Jersey and others the, the the specific state are adopting systems to benefit the, those people who were who were victims of the war on drugs who were incarcerated for for marijuana crimes and 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 because so many of these facilities are being set up near the inner cities or in the inner cities, it's allowed for a, a diversity of people to to participate. And 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 again, it's it it um, going back to to sort of your point is it, it may not be the most efficient efficient way to do it, but it has led to some some benefits in the economy. Allowed some people who who normally might not benefit from uh, from legalization of uh, marijuana to, to benefit. And, and, and that's good. And that's good. And that's a, a really positive thing about this industry. It's interesting that you should mention that. Last week, we interviewed Bonita Money, who is setting up or who has set up an organization called Indica, N-D-I-C-A, which is working to help people who've been convicted and incarcerated for marijuana crimes to sort of re-enter, obtain licenses to get some legitimacy in the cannabis industry. And in California, they have a, a social equity program that's from specific zip codes that were most greatly impacted by this, you know, search and seizure, arrest, prosecution and incarceration of mainly minorities. And so what they're doing to try to make that right, since so many people were incarcerated for so many years and their lives were destroyed. Not only that, but their families' lives were destroyed. And it actually contributed to this cycle of almost like abusive prosecution that targeted these minority and low-income communities. And so what this is doing is really helping to lift these communities up out of that cycle and giving new opportunity to people who have records for uh, marijuana crimes. And so I'm just curious, are they doing the same thing in Massachusetts where it's sort of a social equity program where they're allowed to get into the business? Because there are other states that say if you have any criminal record, any felony on your on your record, you're not allowed to participate in this industry. Yes, they are. And, and in fact, um, California became a, a little bit of a model for Massachusetts. And, and what happened in Massachusetts is that our, our state legislature specifically um, wrote into the law that there should be preferences for people um, uh, who've, who've been victims of the, of the war on drugs. And that there should be preferences for people who of um, who bring diversity, and so um, that has led our our cannabis control commission to to put together a um, a package of of um, ways to address this. First is that there's been a preference um, in the licensing, and and what I mean a preference is that they've the cannabis control commission specifically will address applications from economic empowerment applicants first in the process. And so we we've seen a um, you know influx of applications here in Massachusetts for dispensaries for cultivation sites, and um, those who get preference are those who 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 specifically meet the qualifications of the commission, including victims of the war on drugs or or diverse 
applicants. And, and so that's made for a much more diverse um, pool of, of um, applicants. What we have seen, though, there's some challenges to this. Um, you know, not surprisingly, that um, uh, what we're seeing is that some of these economic empowerment applicants are having difficulty um, uh, getting investment. And one of those difficulties is because they just don't have the access to contacts in other states and other people who have done this before. And, and they also lack experience. And so our commission here has tried to rectify that by giving economic empowerment applicants specific training on how to get investments, on how to run a cannabis operation. Um, and, and so we're, we're kind of in the middle of a grand experiment here. Um, it'll be interesting, I think, in a couple of years to see if um, the applicants, you know, the, those who, who hold licenses in, in a couple of years are, are more diverse or we have more um, victims of war drugs who are owning their own sites. I, it, it is an experiment and, and, and we'll see where it goes. Um, and, and I think some of the basis for what is going on in Massachusetts, we have seen as um, some of the same language in Massachusetts has end up, ended up in the New Jersey um, record, in the proposed New Jersey recreational law. And so I will not be surprised to see that um, New Jersey um, sort of follows the lead that Massachusetts gave. And, and, and let, we'll also see if New Jersey sort of learns some of the lessons and the, and, and the failures and the successes from, uh, from Massachusetts. It's, you know, I, and I think you know is um, the, the, best, the best ideas are ones that other states have done. And, you know, at least here in Massachusetts, we've copied some other states in what we do. And I'm starting to hear that other states are starting to copy Massachusetts. That's really good because there are so many problems that are born from not being specific enough in the laws that were passed. <laughs> that we're, we're noticing that here. I don't know if you've been following any of the court cases that are going on in other states, but here in Arizona, we've had some doozies that make your head spin when you think about the injustice behind it. But we, we recently had the Arizona appellate court denied the petition to reverse a conviction of a card-carrying uh, medical marijuana patient who had hashish that he purchased in a dispensary and was arrested because the definition of marijuana did not align with the criminal code here in Arizona, which stated that cannabis is the resin of the marijuana plant. So it made this unique distinction between the word cannabis and the word marijuana. And in our law here, there was no provision in the law that expanded the definition of marijuana to include extracts and resins and, you know, cannabinoids pulled out during a processing. There was no specific language in there. And so the appellate court jurists said there was one dissenting, but um, the other two said, well, you know, the state is actually correct in this, that cannabis the hashish that he had that he purchased in a dispensary was an illegal substance under the law. And so the guy had to go back to prison and his name was Rodney Jones. And he was an African-American who happened to be stopped in Yavapai County, which is where there are prosecutors who have been trying to get the medical law overturned. So this was a huge victory for them at the expense of a patient who thought he was abiding by the law. 
And we're, we're starting to see more and more people become arrested here in the state because they're carrying extracts that they purchased in a dispensary. It really is just such a conundrum. And it looks like the Supreme Court may just go ahead and overturn this so that Rodney Jones can be set free. But he was a victim of semantics. And there's no other way to state it. And I know in California, they didn't identify CBD. So they sent out a notice a couple months ago saying that you cannot add CBD to food substances because CBD has its own numerical code in Schedule 1. And CBD naturally occurring in marijuana flower, of course, is not illegal in California, only CBD by itself, which means typically CBD extracted from hemp. And it was only because they just didn't mention it. So It'll be interesting to see as these new states implementing new laws this year with measures that were just recently voted upon, if they've learned the mistakes of all of these states to actually get very specific with their language so that there are no incidental omissions (laughs) that will cause other people to go to jail. What you're hitting on is the fact that in some of these states, we we have all written either ballot questions or our legislature legislatures have adopted significant changes to the law and have adopted significant programs to set up our medical and adult use programs. And when you make significant change of this sort, of course, there are going to be mistakes and some issues that come up. And, uh, you know, I, I followed some what's going on in Arizona in the case that you've talked about. And I think what we need to see in those cases is at least some sort of leniency from our from our judges who recognize that this was not meant to be an area where there should be ambiguity. We also what we need to see is we need to see our legislatures act quickly in those circumstances. Um, and, and unfortunately, of course, what happens is politics gets in the way. And we've been in Massachusetts been trying to do a technical fix to our to our cannabis bill because there have been some some issues that have come up. But of course, politics gets in the way of that. But but I, I, I think the point is the one that you hit on, which is, you know, for those who are considering bringing legislative measures or writing laws or ballot questions, please learn the lessons of other states. Please do not write a, um, a a new ballot question or a new law without getting significant input from um, from the legal community and your in your communities and your states. This these things are very complicated, and if they're not done right. Um, uh, they, they they can have some severe consequences, and that's what we, that's what we we have seen in in Arizona, and and so um, you're you're absolutely right. We need we need some leniency once once these things are passed. But it's great to get them right at the first time, and the way you get them right at the first is by learning some of the lessons from other states. Yeah, and also for the jurists to be educated on these semantics as well, because. I can't help but feel that if the Arizona appellate court jurists were educated about the fact that cannabis and marijuana are one and the same, (laughs) I I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with these new states, and I'll be following that very closely, obviously. What I also think, too, is that we we are doing a better job of expanding our 
bar state bars in in these states that are legalized. So I, I haven't gone back to what happened in Arizona, but I know in in certain circumstances in certain states we have gotten attorneys involved in cases who do not have cannabis experience. And I'm not criticizing attorneys who are taking on these matters because they lack um, cannabis experience. What I'm suggesting, however, is that as our state bars, as our attorneys in, in each state get better educated about cannabis and, and all of the different nuances about cannabis and the distinction between um, CBD and, and cannabis and, and understand more about it, it, it will lead to better decisions. It will lead to better advocacy on behalf of our, of our cannabis clients. Um, and, and just lead to a better legal system. And so I, I can't talk specifically about the lawyering and with regards to the circumstances in Arizona, but I'll tell you that there are so many nuances among these products. And those who are who are in this industry, I think, are starting to realize that and, and are beginning better educated on it. And that's leading to um, more discussion among attorneys who work in this industry about how we can educate ourselves better. It's leading to you know more education of our legislators and, and all of that is good. And this is what happens when you invent a new industry. It takes time for people to understand the nuances. It takes time to for people to learn the difference between hemp, CBD, and, and, and cannabis. And we're slowly getting there, but I, I appreciate the fact, and we're not getting there quick enough on, on the legal side. And, and it's programs like yours that are, are furthering the education. We need to keep doing it. Well, thank you for saying that. And it kind of harkens back to the same problem in the medical community as well, because we're now finding that cannabinoid deficiency is such a huge part of disease process and the immune system failures and neurological failures that we have. And yet doctors are not educated on the endocannabinoid system. So it's kind of the same thing. Any profession that has hands on this industry really does have such a steep learning curve to go through in order to, you know, really get up to speed with what's possible, what's legal, what's what's medically salient for patients, you know, what's necessary for human health and what's necessary to correct the wrongs in our criminal justice system. I mean, it is a huge learning curve. And, you know, and I, I appreciate that you say that. And I think that education really is the key to this. And I think as people realize that the sky is not falling because of legalization measures that have passed in different states, there's going to come a time where our lawmakers are going to have to stop protecting the lobbyists who are fighting tooth and nail to keep cannabis from becoming legal. You know, and there are so many industries that threaten trying to block this. I mean, pharmaceuticals, the most obvious, but we also have like the the biofuel industry with corn and soy and and the opiate producers, uh, they're very threatened by this. Private prisons are threatened by it. Alcohol is threatened by it. But it's amazing how the politics, the lobbyists, and the lack of education are all synergistically working together to you know, slow the progress. But I think this is a runaway train. And there's just no stopping it at this point because the financial upside the upside to the communities, the medical upside, the environmental upside, all of those things, they're, they're more powerful than the lobbies against cannabis regulation. So, yeah, it's, it's just interesting. Let me give you an example of um, an area where, where I think we're improving. And um, so here in Massachusetts, we've had medical uh, marijuana since the ballot question in 2012. 
Um, uh, and we've got we've had lawyers who have been participating in this industry before that, and and obviously once the system got set up, so 2012, 2013. Well, we finally um, just this 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 past month had our first um, meeting of a of the cannabis of the Boston Bar Association's cannabis group. We finally put together and had a cannabis symposium for an afternoon of of attorneys here in Massachusetts, Boston based, who are who are interested in cannabis and who are working in the cannabis se- sector. And it it took six years for for that to happen. And there are a couple of reasons it took six years for it to happen. Right. One is is when when it started out, there was there was still a a, a feeling among the lawyers many lawyers in the bar association that that was not necessarily a, a legitimate way to practice law um, and and second there you know there were just not not enough folks to, to provide an education but slowly over time that changed and and so it took us six years to, to do that but we had a we had a wonderful day where we um, we talked about real estate we talked about intellectual property we talked about a variety of other um, topics in in the cannabis world and I know there are a number of cannabis bar associations out there and and I know we're we're just getting better at that and so you know that's a little example of how we can be better at sharing ideas you brought up doctors you know it, it, we're starting to see the same thing in the medical community sort of real discussions about uh, about um, how cannabis can save lives and 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 that that's getting better it, it, it's just it's just taking time and and um, Snowden you're right to be frustrated by that but I think from my view it, it, the good news is it, it's it's happening and it's, it's it's long overdue but it's happening yeah it's great to hear that these things are happening and I I have seen it too. I mean, you know, and I've, I started writing about cannabis in 2010. So my level of frustration is from, you know, it's cumulative from <laughs> all of these years and being in a state that has um, medical law in place. It's hard to imagine living in states that don't have any medical or adult use laws to protect patients or just civilians who like to imbibe. And it just seems with all we know, it must be terribly frustrating for the people living in those places to have access to the internet where they find out that, you know, so-and-so cured such and such a disease, and yet here they are suffering with the same disease and can't have access. So I'm really looking forward to the day when finally we can take cannabis out of Schedule 1, because it never should have been there to begin with, and start educating lawmakers about the benefits of this. And and I think it'll solve so many problems. I mean, you've seen in Massachusetts, I know that we were talked about this a little bit ago, the economic upside is just so great, and especially in these sort of marginalized communities. And so... Yeah, I'm I'm very encouraged by what's happening. Yeah, and and I think one of the things you should be encouraged about is the um the election victories that that the marijuana movement had um uh, on election day uh uh in November. Um you know, first is Michigan. Um for the first time we've got a state in the in the Midwest that has legalized cannabis as uh and and both adult use and 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 medical and 
that is just wonderful news because, we, as you know, it, this has largely been a um, for on the adult use side has been a coastal thing. We've had our coast um, states on our coast legalize adult use, and and now we've got a, a state in the Midwest. We also saw two conservative states, some that might say very conservative states, um, legalize medical marijuana through ballot questions: Utah and Missouri. And and again, a reflection that. This is a bipartisan issue, um, a reflection that in those states that um, the patients um, need access to cannabis and that cannabis is is a legitimate way to to treat those patients. Um, and and so at least with those ballot questions, I think we you, you know we we see a, a further expansion of, um, of of cannabis. The the one the one negative, at least from a ballot question point of view, was North Dakota, where that state failed to pass. A legalization measure. Again, and I, I think it, it's for me and you a, a recognition that we still have more work to do. But overall, uh, at least from a ballot question perspective, that the that we will see, you know, you talked about those patients in, in states that who, who don't have legalized can, cannabis regimes and how how they must be suffering and, how, you know, how that must be frustrating for them. And, and, and the good news is that we've seen three states on, on Election Day who have um, who have legalized it. Yeah. I I was very encouraged to see that Utah finally did. I mean, uh, I spoke with a mother of a severely disabled child a couple of years ago on this show, and she took her daughter to Colorado because someone had said that cannabis could possibly help her. And then when she returned, Child Protective Services showed up and wanted to take her kids away. And she wouldn't open the door, and then she called her attorney, and then she left. <laughs> she moved to Oregon with her entire family, just packed everybody up and split. And it's these scenarios that could just destroy families as well. So I'm really happy that they did. And they've been fighting that for a long time, trying to get the legislature in Utah to actually do something internally as opposed to doing a ballot measure. But I'm very, very encouraged. You know, it does show that the message is getting out and that cannabis is in demand by their constituents. So, yeah, I think the lawmakers are going to need to sort of get on board with all of this. And I'm very encouraged by it. And I am disappointed about North Dakota. But the thing about that is that they might have been better served to go straight for a medical law as opposed to going straight for an adult use law. That's absolutely right. Um, and, and, and I agree with you. And uh, although I, I, I will say this is that, um, you know, I, I don't, uh, I'm not in the business of criticizing those who are working hard to bring these, these changes to law. And, and, and so I, I, um, I, I appreciate the fact that the, the proponents of that ballot question did that in, in North Dakota. And, and I thank them for their, for their efforts. There were some other good news on election night in, um, New Mexico, Minnesota, um, and Illinois, all elected new governors who um, have indicated that they are um, supportive of legalized marijuana and that they would like to bring um, legalized marijuana to their states. Um, and, and so I take that as a real positive. The, the, the voters um, elected those. I think they were all um, all Democrats, but again, showing that legalized marijuana can be part of a, a campaign and, and, and can be a reason that people will vote for, for a candidate. And, and again, all states that 
you know, haven't necessarily been thought of as states that are going to be pro-marijuana. I think the other interesting state that we followed pretty closely was Maine. You know, Maine is a state that has legalized marijuana, but just really has not got their system set up. The governor was opposed to it. The legislature has tried a number of ways to try to move ahead with legalized marijuana, but there's, you know, there's no real system in, in Maine other than a caregiver program. And I'm not criticizing a caregiver program, but it doesn't have the the commercial legalization in Maine that some other states have had. And the great news about Maine is that there's a new governor there um, who is supportive of legalized marijuana. And I, I think it's going to be a, a state where we'll, we will see sort of a, a legitimate um, regulatory environment that will allow for legalized marijuana. And so I, I looked at election night and saw some real positives. Yeah. And if anybody has taken a look at the information that Normal puts out, the report cards on the voting records of legislators and all up and down the elected officials, how they treat bills related to cannabis. And, you know, it's from A to F, you've got, (laughs) it runs the gamut. And what I did as a social experiment before the election was I contacted all of the congressional candidates' offices to see who is in favor and who is not. And I found it really interesting that a lot of the pro-marijuana candidates were actually elected. And it would be interesting to run a survey and see if that influenced anyone's vote, because you saw some seriously red districts go blue. And when you look at the voting records of the people who were incumbents in those areas, be interesting to see how much voters were motivated by that particular issue. And I think that a lot of the people who were pro-cannabis who were elected into Congress, and now we have that majority of lawmakers who approve of some form of cannabis regulation. It'll be really interesting to see whether or not some of these bills that have been shuffled off to committee, if any of those wind up hitting the floor for a vote finally. So it's encouraging. Yeah, I, I, I am encouraged. I mean, let me, I, I have a couple of thoughts on um, federal legalization. First is, um, you know, if, if, if somebody hold, holds a gun to my head and says, do I think it's going to be legalized in the next two years? I, I think the answer is no. I, I, I still think that this, um, uh, Congress is 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 likely going to be um, high, will likely be highly partisan in the next two years. It's going to be very hard to um, to get things done and um, taking on a issue that has been largely controversial in in this environment and in, in the ne- next years and expecting um, uh, legalization. Um, I, I think it will, will be a tough task. That said, you are absolutely right. The the fact that the Democrats have now um, uh, taken over the um, the House is 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 a, is a good sign for legalization. Um, as you know, um, uh, Congressman Blumenauer um, has proposed a. A, a kind of a blueprint on how to legalize marijuana, Democrat. Um, his party will be in power. And, and I do think we will um, see some movement on um, some some measures. I, I, you know, there is a bill filed by Elizabeth Warren um, that would legalize marijuana on the federal level in those states that have legalized marijuana. And, and that would be a good thing. It would be a wonderful interim step. Um, and, and, um, so we we look for that um, 
the the president uh, has said that he will support that legislation. What that means and whether that happens, um, I, I think, are, are issues that w- we will have to see. So, you know, I think in general, I'm, I'm pessimistic for the next two years about legalization. I am positive about the fact that we will see some progress, uh, and and I and I think that'll be been led by some of the Democrats. And and um, you know, I the other interesting news is uh, that goes with the elections is that um, Attorney General Sessions is, has been forced out or resigned, um, and and how that affects this, I, I think it's is is really too early to tell. Um, you know, I, I think uh, obviously Attorney General Sessions was a known opponent and a very vocal opponent to to, to um, marijuana and marijuana legalization, and so in the sense, um, the fact that he was there was was always a bad thing for 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 us who who are in favor of marijuana legalization. On the other hand, um, you know, Attorney General Sessions was um, is was a, was just a largely ineffective Attorney General because he had this conflict with the president, and and so it'll be interesting if a new Attorney General comes in who is also anti-marijuana and who can actually be a little more effective than Attorney General Sessions is, whether that actually hurts the movement. So too early to tell, but in general, I, I think the election results were positive. Yeah, I feel very encouraged by it, you know, in terms of how it will impact the cannabis movement. But yeah, so any last thoughts, anything that feel is important for people to know? Well, you know, the one issue we haven't talked about is banking. Um, And that um, to me, it remains one of our one of our challenges here in in in, in the United States, um, and and it kind of affects everything we talked about today. It, it's one of the reasons that our companies are are looking to Canada because they're not finding the financing here. It is one of the real challenges that. Um, that 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 our cannabis companies are facing when they in their day to day operations, um, and and one of the things I'm really looking at is whether we will see more traditional banks get into this industry now that that the, that the environment has improved, and and then what are the other sort of options? Um, there are a lot of a lot of technology, a lot of companies out there who are proposing technology that are that are interesting end runs around banks. And to follow that and to follow where that goes, I, I think only interesting. I, I think, I think this the fact that 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 the banking industry has been so sluggish, so uh, to, to to adopt this this industry is is really held us back. And so I, I'm watching that for the for the for the next year or so to see where that goes because it could really open things up. There's still so many problems with with interstate banking, but. Has Massachusetts actually opened up any of the banking laws on a state level? So what what we've seen in Massachusetts is that we have seen a number of state chartered banks, and you're you're right to to talk about interstate banking. Um, there are smaller banks who who actually receive their charters from the state as opposed to from the federal government, and we've seen t- two or three of those banks here in Massachusetts who have served um, our cannabis companies. They've done a wonderful job, um, and we. Appreciate the fact that they are serving the industry. The, one of the challenges, though, what comes with them is that the fees, you know, for a for a uh, cannabis company to to be served by a bank, even a state charter bank, the fees are really excessive. 
So we we have our we it, because because the banks have to do so much work to comply with federal law since they have cannabis clients. Every time a a bank in Massachusetts, well, any in any state, handles a transaction for a cannabis customer, they need to report that transaction to the federal government, and and that reporting procedure is costly for banks, and they pass along the cost of that to their customers. And so um, we we are banked here in Massachusetts for the most part, uh, but our companies are, it's not an efficient, it's not a, a very efficient way to do it because the bank fees are high. That said, we're happy to have them. So are they subject to, I, I guess with the high fees, it makes me think about the short money loan industry where the crazy interest rates and they're regulated differently than your big banks. These banks, um, and I want to draw that distinction between the fees that they pay, um, that, that our cannabis companies pay to banks, as opposed to the interest rates. So so generally right now, even in Massachusetts, even with state charter banks, and even I think across the country, um, there is no market right now for companies, for cannabis companies to borrow money from a bank um, in a traditional loan or mortgage or use your property or collateral. That is just not there. There is no lending um, from a from a bank, even state chartered banks, and that's why you you've seen some interesting investment opportunities. The investors come in and and will charge some higher rates uh, because there's no banks out there that do it. Um, what I was referring to with the fees is um, banks in Massachusetts and other places will serve cannabis companies. They'll they'll take their deposits. They'll allow them to have checking accounts. They'll 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 allow them to transfer money. They'll allow them to wire money. No different than than you know what 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 any a lot of other companies do, except they can't borrow money. But the, but what the banks will do will charge pretty high fees to do that. And so some of our clients are paying upwards of five thousand, ten thousand, fifteen thousand dollars a month in fees to the bank just because they're paying a fee for every transaction that, that other companies just don't need to pay. And so it's these fees that are are, are the challenge. And and again, I, I think we understand in the industry why we pay these fees because of the banks are having to do so much reporting to the federal government. It, it's just it's just one of the many other challenges that 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 our cannabis companies are facing. Wow. And I, I didn't realize it was that high. So it, it makes it a lot harder for cannabis companies to be profitable when they're having to deal with these extra things that other entrepreneurs don't have to deal with. How do the investors handle that? Because, I mean, does that deter investors from actually entering the business when they see these kinds of practices? Um, yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's cannabis investing is not for your, uh, is not for everyone. Um, it's one of the reason that, you know, some of the, the large banks do not invest in, you know, JP Morgan or, um, Goldman Sachs is, is for the most part not investing in, in cannabis companies. And, and it, it does mean that there is a market out there for, you know, most of our clients, what well, their investments are going to come from family offices or from small investors who are who don't have regulations the way the federal government excuse me the way the way large banks do and and but you're right that one of the one of the first questions that um that investors will often ask is hey do you have banking 
Um, are you banked? Um, if so, what, what are your fees and how does that work? Um, it, it is, if you're an investor, that's a question you need to ask. And if, if, if they're in a state where they can't get um, banking, then, uh, then it's a real challenge. And in, even in the states where there is banking, these fees are high. That it that it, you're you're right. It goes right. It takes right from the profits. Yeah, and I'm wondering, you know, the people who have these sort of nebulous names that don't identify that they have hands on the plant. <laughs> it's you know obvious when it's coming from the sale of the plant that's going to the consumer, and that's revenue coming in, and that can't run through the traditional banking. But what about producers like biotech companies who are obviously dealing in the industry, but I just haven't heard of it. Have you, where banks are, are targeting them for these higher fees and or refusing to move their money around? No, I haven't heard of it either. And what, you know, the, uh, it, it is, the banking world is a very interesting world, but, but um, banks... Uh, one of the things they need to know is they they're required to un, under federal laws to know their customers and know somewhat about what their customers the transactions they are up to and so they know if a you know if a company walks in the door and says we're going to be a cannabis company they know that nearly all of the transactions that are going to involve that company are are going to be red flag transactions whereas if you're banking for a biotech company or you're banking for a law firm you're just much less likely to ask those questions and and um so i, I guess the point is some of these companies the ancillary companies who are we're not in, not quote unquote cannabis companies, but may be involved in the cannabis industry. Um, they, they're just getting less scrutiny than than a company that walks in the door and says, "This is what I do. I I dispense cannabis." It's, it's funny because that is sort of a discrimination. Because if I have a, a company that has the name Joe's Cookery, where in fact I'm making edibles <laughs> in the cannabis industry, you know, the bank's not going to ask the same questions. And what's our obligation to disclose that? It just seems like sort of an unfair practice, you know. I hear you. Um, I, I will tell you, though, um, you know, I think my my clients would tell you is they are happy to be banked. And and so I, I you, you are asking correct question, Snowden. But I, I would not, uh, you know, I we view the banks that are serving this industry in certain states as heroes because they've gone, they bucked the trend um, and they've decided to, to bank this industry. And, and, and I, you know, I if they need to charge higher fees to do it, most of my clients say, well, we'd, we'd rather pay higher fees at a bank than have no bank at all. Yeah. And is there any legal liability for the entrepreneur if they do have a company named Joe's Cookery, which is in the cannabis industry, do they have any obligation to say to the bank what they're making? Or is it on the bank to figure it out and say, oh, wait a minute, you're in the cannabis industry. I really can't touch this. Generally, what happens is that, um, you know, the banks, the banks have a certain level of scrutiny that they will show to any customer who walks in the door. You are correct that it's easier and uh, to be a biotech company than it is to be a cannabis company, but banks are going to kind of figure that out quickly. I think, I think the nuance you're getting at is that sometimes a biotech company, a law firm, a um, 
a service provider may actually start serving the cannabis industry and the banks don't ask about that because um, they're, they view that client as a law firm or a cannabis or a uh, biotech company. Whereas when you walk in the door, generally a bank's going to figure out you're a cannabis company. And when they do, they're going to ask a bunch of questions of you and, and, and they're going to look to make sure you have a state license and they're going to make sure you, um, you, 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 you follow procedures the right way and then they're going to charge you higher fees. Wow. Well, that's good information and <laughs> you gave us a lot to think about today. <laughs> so I thank you for that. Thank you very much for having me today. I, re- I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed this uh, and I look forward to talking again. Well, thank you, Kevin. I really appreciate your being here. So, Oh, once again, it is time to bring yet another show to a close. I'd personally like to thank my guest, Kevin Conroy, for sharing his insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work he's doing at Foley Hogue, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's episode. And there you will find his bio along with information and a link to his website. We have so many people to thank. First, I'd like to express our gratitude for our radio sponsors, Canisphere Biotech and Healthterra. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. I'd also like to thank Eric Goodall, our theme song composer, and our production team here at the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show for always making us shine. And it goes without saying just how much we appreciate our programming directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for distributing our show. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop inviting you to join me again next week, same time, same place, for a very special episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. We'll be celebrating our 100th episode with Montel Williams, so you don't want to miss it. Until then, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Evergreen is calling.